Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from hiding with the Chetniks to three generations at sea through life on a troop ship and the revenge of a PT instructor. Our next story is from Oliver Davy. This is the story of three generations of my family who served in the Second World War. Two played a small part and one gave his life. My great-great-grandfather, Fred Davy, was born in Devon in 1886. He served in the Royal Navy as a stoker and mechanic from 1905 through the First World War until 1927. In June 1940, he volunteered to rejoin the Royal Navy when the country was in its greatest need. We understand he manned tugboats, retracting torpedo nets to allow larger vessels into harbour. Unfortunately, we don't have any more details but it was obviously an important job and a useful way for a seaman in his late fifties to serve his country. Fred's son, my great-grandfather, Arthur Leonard Davy, was born in 1904 and in 1920 added two years to his age in order to join the Navy. He travelled the world on many vessels until January 1939 when he joined the light cruiser HMS Gloucester. His military record described him as having a very good character and superior efficiency, propelling him to the rank of Chief Stoker. HMS Gloucester joined the Mediterranean fleet in 1940 and was involved with the Malta convoys. Following the invasion of Crete by German paratroopers in May 1941, the Gloucester was tasked with intercepting reinforcements, but came under repeated dive-bombing attacks by Stukas. Despite a diminishing supply of anti-aircraft ammunition, Gloucester was not ordered away from the battle and was eventually sunk. It's unimaginable to think what it must have been like to experience an aerial attack down in the engine room, especially as the end became inevitable. The last entry on my great-grandfather's war record states, 22nd of May, 41, missing. 
He was, however, not declared dead until after the war. My grandfather, Roy Davy, was 15 years old when he lost his father. Having grown up in Ivybridge near Plymouth, he was hoping to start a career on the Great Western Railway that passed through the town. However, his father had expected him to continue the family tradition of joining the Navy, which his now widowed mother insisted upon. So in 1942, he joined the Fleet Air Arm as an apprentice mechanic. He served at bases around the UK throughout the war and afterwards, working on such planes as Swordfish, Corsairs and Seahawks until he left in 1957. In 1947, he was based on HMS Sanderling, now Glasgow Airport, when a group of wrens were being shown the cockpit of a Seafire. As they climbed down off the wing, he was offering a hand to them so they didn't fall. One headstrong wren refused his help, slipped and fell at his feet. This was my grandmother and they were married 60 years. And that was from Oliver Davy. Our next story this week from an American listener, Chris Lacombe. Gents, I have wanted to write for some time now to tell my grandfather's story, Papa to us. Alex Lacombe was born in 1921 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Home life wasn't easy during the Great Depression then, as he put it, in 1939, some absolute twit decided to take over Poland, and life changed for all of us. Alex joined the Army Air Force in 1943 and entered basic training in Florida. He became a tail gunner on a B-24D, flying with the 450th Bombardment Group, 722nd Squadron. After training, his crew were given a brand new plane to fly to Italy. They headed out with a layover in Trinidad and then on to Manduria Airfield in Italy. When asked years later what he thought about going to fight a war, Papa said that it was something he had to do. He didn't object, nor did he want to go, but it was his duty to do so. On the 31st of May 1944, when getting ready for a bombing raid, their plane developed engine problems and they were instructed to take a different bomber. It was a veteran of many combat missions named Rum Buggy. The mission was a bombing raid across the Adriatic to the oil fields of Plesti, Romania. The target was screened off by smoke, but huge fires were started and black smoke was observed indicating the target was hit. All the formation returned safely, except for Lieutenant Schaefer and Lieutenant Barrett's crews. Alex was part of Lieutenant Schaefer's crew. This was their 13th mission. Alex was in his position in the tail, wearing a heated suit. Over Yugoslavia, Rumbuggy caught fire. Alex said, we had two choices, jump out of the plane or go down with it. We jumped. Lieutenant Schaefer was last out and was captured by the Nazis. The rest of the crew managed to parachute safely. Alex had never practiced jumping in basic, but they had been given instructions. Jump, count to ten, pull the ripcord. This is how he described it. Suddenly it seemed deathly quiet. There was no more battle noise, no guns firing, no smell of cordite, no engine straining. No intercom chatter. All Allied bomb crews were given briefings on how to evade capture if downed and given a compass, silk maps of the country they were flying over. Papa's map is framed and hangs on the wall today. Alex buried his parachute and began to get out of sight when he heard a voice shouting at him. He thought the Nazis had got him and raised his hands to surrender. He said, What else could I do? I wasn't armed to fight a group that knew the area. Then... A little old lady appeared from behind a tree and I thought, well, the jig is up, they know where I am. And then we all saw the rum buggy come wheeling around in a final lunge into the earth, just over the next hill. 
exploding in a burst of flame. A group of people appeared and began motioning for Alex to follow. The whole time he thought he was under arrest, but he didn't see any German soldiers. He was taken to a farmyard where one of his crewmates, Norm Werner, was trying to convince this group they were American. After about half an hour, a man who spoke English showed up and convinced the group that, yes, they were American aircrew members. The group were Chetniks under Draza Mihailovich. At great risk to their own safety, these people cared for and hid Alex and hundreds of other Allied aircrew and soldiers over several months. One family that sheltered Alex was Adam and Ilinka Arsenievich. Adam had been able to hide from the Nazis and avoid being conscripted by Tito's army. Alex developed a strong friendship with Adam and his family, including a nephew named Mikan. At one point, Alex even met Draza Mihailovich himself. After months of hiding, a rescue plan was formulated and given the codename Operation Halyard. Chetniks and US soldiers cleared a section of land to create a landing strip. On the 31st of July, six planes were to fly in and take out 12 soldiers each. The operation was delayed by a few days, but on the 10th of August, the first of the planes came in. The story Alex told us is that his plane was supposed to come in at night with lights off, but that the pilot turned on his lights at the last second. Fortunately, the plane wasn't spotted. Everyone got on and they were taken out safely to Italy. We found details of Operation Halyard through the book The Forgotten 500. After returning to the US, Alex ended up in Glendale, California, met the girl next door and for the most part lived quietly ever after. Alex and Geraldine married in 1945 and raised three children. After the war, Alex exchanged a few letters with Adam and Elinka, but eventually letters were returned undeliverable. In 1984, Alex and Geraldine flew to Vienna and drove to what was then Yugoslavia to visit some of the locations he remembered. He had only the names of the family and a town name of Srem. Once in the area, they stopped at a kafana with some men sitting around outside. Despite the language barrier, Alex managed to get across that he was looking for Adam Arsenovich. He showed them a picture of himself as a young airman. One fellow told them to follow him and they drove up a hill to a house. Shortly, the man came out with Adam Arsenovich. Alec, Alec, why did you wait so long, Adam said. Alex and Geraldine stayed for several days. Ilinka had passed away, but Adam's nephew Mikan was there and remembered Alex despite being a young boy at the time. After returning to the US, Alex and Adam remained in contact. In one letter to Alex, Adam wrote, I still want to thank you for your visit here. After 41 years, you decided to visit us. It proves you have not forgotten us. Our memories are going to live with us because we will tell them about you and I. Thank you both for all your work. I look forward to every episode, but the family stories most of all. Please keep up the fantastic work. Regards, Chris Lacombe, Oliver Springs, Tennessee. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
Our next story this week comes from James Pierce. Your recent request to IC members for family stories for the podcast has raised my interest in my family in wartime. My father, after training in Bewley, was posted in India with the SOE and ran agents in Siam and Malaya for much of the war as part of Force 136. Interestingly, his regimental service records are blank for this period. My mother was secretary to Gladwin Jeb in the Foreign Office and on the day war was declared, was called into the office to help issue telegrams. My uncle was in the fleet air arm and was shot down by the Japanese. His body was never found. He's listed on the fleet air arm memorial at Leon Solent. My father's father, who served in the Royal Navy in World War I, was called back into service as a captain and died of natural causes while on active service out of Glasgow. My mother's father was a major in the Indian Electrical Engineers and again died of natural causes while on service in India. He is buried in the Commonwealth Wargrove Cemetery in New Delhi. The most amazing place to visit. My parents are both now dead, and I'm very sad I didn't find out more about their experiences and those of their relatives while they were still alive. Regards, James Pierce. Our next story this week comes from Steve Peckham. When my dad moved in with us, I was sorting through some papers and was about to throw away an old notebook. Leafing through it, I found this narrative written by him on his travels at the end of 1942, from basic training in Thursk to Port Tufik in Egypt. He wrote as follows. We all collected in the town hall at Thursk for a final talk and instructions. The company sergeant major said a few words, finishing up with cheerio and God bless you all. As he walked out of the hall, amidst hearty cheers, there were tears in his eyes. We all liked that Cockney sergeant major. He was a decent chap. Then came a march of about two miles to the station carrying all our kit. Our departure was no secret. The locals came out to wish us the best of luck. The train reached Glasgow in the early light of morning and then up the banks of the Clyde, through the shipyards with work going on under arc lamps to Journey's End at Granock at 0300 hours. We stood on the station looking out into the harbour, wondering which ship was going to take us to our unknown destination. As we were taken out in a lighter, it soon became obvious we were about to sail in the famous Queen Mary. The accommodation was hammocks and crowded. After settling down, there was a mad rush for the canteen, where everything was like peacetime. Chocolate, biscuits and cigarettes. All made in America, by the way. We set sail and immediately hit bad weather. Everybody was being sick, but I managed to keep vertical and only missed two meals in the elaborate dining hall. In a few days, the sea and the fellows' stomachs began to settle and boxing was organised on the main deck aft. Christmas Day was just like any other day. Nothing to do except sit about on deck. That may sound boring, but being in the army with nothing to do is a novelty on its own. In the evenings, there was always the RAF dance band to listen to on the promenade deck. Monday the 28th was much warmer, and I put on my tropical shirt and shorts and got my first sunburn. Great excitement was caused by the sight of flying fish skimming over the water. Today, Lockheed Hudson's was still to be seen occasionally. Tuesday the 29th, we were alone in a sea smooth as glass of a colour blue that had to be seen to be believed. Flying fish and schools of porpoises leapt high out of the sea. Wednesday the 30th, a convoy was sighted and at 1500 hours through the heat mist, the black outline of the mountains of Sierra Leone came into view. By 1700 hours, we were anchored in Freetown Harbour after coming into the bay through a gap in the submarine nets. The heat was terrific and below decks the sweat just rolled off continuously. 
The first impressions of Freetown was the colour, just like the vivid colours of Technicolor films. The gold of the sand, the green of the trees and the heat rising off thickly wooded hills. Some natives came out in their boats, made from hollowed tree trunks with a triangular sail. They dived for coins, but nothing less than sixpence. At sunset, we were not allowed on deck unless sleeves were down, trousers tucked into socks and exposed portions smeared with anti-mosquito ointment, as Sierra Leone is malaria-ridden. Tuesday, the 5th of January 1943, we anchored in Cape Town at 09.30 and were browned off by the news that we could not go ashore. It looked such a delightful town with its houses rising up in a gentle slope to the foot of Table Mountain. All the time stores and oil were being taken on while people in launches came out to have a look at us. Before leaving Cape Town we were each allowed to send a cable home. The anchor came up at 04.30 hours on Thursday the 7th and we sailed out with a destroyer escort which stayed with us for about 12 hours. I celebrated my 22nd birthday on the 10th with half a dozen oranges. Monday the 11th was the hottest experience. Sweat poured off in buckets. At meals you had to keep on mopping your face to prevent the sweat dropping in the tea and making it salty. Friday the 15th, the rocky coast of Arabia was sighted and the anchor dropped at 09.30 outside Aden. Native boats made for us with goods to sell. Several queer hawk-like birds hovered over the ship. The land itself seemed to be nothing but mountains, rocks and sand. The stay in Aden was not long and we pushed on into the Red Sea through very hot weather. Soon came the time for packing and changing back into battle dress. The Mary finally anchored on the 18th January 1943 at 0800 hours. A very fast and pleasant journey. Dad served in the Royal Corps of Signals from July 1942 until December 1945 in North Africa, Greece, Italy and after VE Day in Germany. And a thank you to Steve Peckham for that. And our final story this week comes from Jean Ott. There are so many family stories I could tell. My grandfather-in-law, who was a member of the 517th PRCT, and how he stayed in Naples to set up a switchboard of his girlfriend. Or my great-uncle, who was in a mobile anti-aircraft unit that was at Remagen, and his picture of an AR-234 jet fighter overhead. Or maybe my grandmother, who told stories about riding the train between New York and Indiana, where she was going to college, and the soldiers she met and then wrote to. For me, though, my fascination started with my paternal grandfather, who always referred to the Second World War as his war. Born in Austria in 1919, he came to this country in Lederhosen, of all things. Upon arriving in New York Harbour, his mother, Sabina, insisted he was to be an American boy. The Lederhosen had to go. He embraced this completely, growing up in the Bronx, playing baseball, drinking Cokes and smoking camels. He grew into a gifted athlete, and while he wanted to be a professional baseball player, his mother insisted no son of hers would get paid to play a child's game. What I haven't mentioned about him yet was he was also Jewish, and that detail becomes important during his service. He actually heard of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor while at a New York Giants football game. After being drafted, he found himself at Camp Butner in North Carolina, assigned to the 830th Quartermaster Railhead Company. I think this was always a disappointment to him, as both his older brother and younger brother served overseas, but being legally blind in one eye kept him away from enemy fire. While today Camp Butner has been absorbed by Fort Bragg, during the war it was a separate installation, and there were German POWs at the camp. 
As his discharge papers assert, my grandfather's classification was 283 athletic instructor, and given his physical acumen, one of his responsibilities was leading those German POWs through daily calisthenics, including sit-ups and squat jumps. Even during the winter, North Carolina was warmer than Germany, and the spring and summer months could be especially brutal for men used to a Baltic or Bavarian climate. This led to sweating and probably some muttered curses. Even decades later, it was clear he took a good deal of delight in all of this and was clearly still amused that the so-called master race got their daily workout from him, a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx. All the best, Alan James. That was from Gene Ott. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now.